as we gather this morning and uh, think about this passage that you see here on the PowerPoint, I, I want to bring this to our attention particularly because it's one of those unique and remarkable incidents, incidences in which we see a man meeting God. And every time a man meets God, remarkable things take place. First of all, we learn something about God when we see a man who meets him. But we do more than just learn. We actually, if we ourselves meet God, and I think that's what we've come here this morning to do, we find that the process of coming into contact with divinity in itself is transformative. In other words, it changes us. And we find that that's true in this remarkable instance that we see in Exodus chapter 33 in, B, in verses 12 through 23. Now, this is a particularly remarkable instance of a man meeting God for at least two reasons. One is because at the moment that we expect God to show up in fury of justice, he unveils his goodness. And because in getting to see God's glory, if we stand alongside Moses this morning, we get to know him a little bit better. So let me read for you these verses here, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 33 and then on down through verse 23. Moses said to the people, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me, yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, God, said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, Moses speaking to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that I have spoken, you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he, God, said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our thinking when we consider God is the most significant thing that defines who we are. In other words, our view of God has a huge impact on who we actually are. 
And so this morning, as we stand in a sense next to Moses in that cleft in the rock, I want to show you who God really is so that we can grow together with Moses in an understanding of this God. In order to do that, we need to step a little bit further back in the context. So we're going to take a whirlwind survey of how Moses ended up at this place. So hold on. Buckle your seatbelts. We're going to do just a tiny bit of history here in order to prepare us to actually understand what is taking place and why it's so significant that God unveils himself in this particular way at this particular point in time to this particular man in the midst of this particular people. So here we go. Who were these people that Moses was a part of? And I want to show you this morning, if you look back just one chapter, beginning in chapter 32, that something very, very bad is in the immediate rearview mirror that these people are experiencing. So Moses had gone up in chapter 24 of the book of Exodus to the mountain to receive from God the law. And uh, he had told the people, I will return, so to speak. But he'd been there 40 days and 40 nights. And when he ascended the mountain, it was ablaze with the fire of God. The prospects of Moses' return to the people looked, well, um, not too promising. And so they became very impatient. And the people... The people thought that perhaps God had consumed Moses. It had, in fact, been a long time since, since he'd been there. And they said, Moses has delayed, verse 1 of chapter 32, and we're tired of waiting for him. But they did more than that. They were aimless. They knew they needed a leader, but they looked for a leader in the wrong place. So sitting in the wilderness, they had nowhere to go but either back to Egypt, to slavery, or on to the promised land without the man who led them there or the God who had been their only savior. They were not only aimless, though, they were disobedient. Interestingly, uh, it seems like, well, perhaps they didn't know that this was wrong, building this golden calf and worshiping, but they did. Clear back in Exodus chapter 20, 12 chapters prior to this, God had specifically said, you shall have no other God beside me. And he had said, you shall not have any graven images, which this was a graven image, one that, in fact, Aaron himself had graven. He said, because I'm a jealous God. And even more specifically than that, in Exodus chapter 20, he said, you shall not make for yourselves gods of gold. Hmm. Well, they were very disobedient. They broke God's commands. But they were more than that. They were perverse and stiff-necked. They were self-willed. What in the world is perverse and stiff-necked? What does that mean? Look at this verse here in chapter 32, verse 9. It says, the Lord speaking. This is how he defines the people. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. This is the first time in the Bible this description is used. It has to do with the fact that they were iniquitous, which means they wanted what they wanted. Whatever they wanted to do, they just wanted to do. They wanted their own way. You know, there's only one thing worse, it's said, than, than not getting what you want. And that is getting what you want. And uh, the people here said, but we want what we want anyway, not thinking about, not considering the consequences of what their way would actually produce. They were perverse. They were stiff-necked. In fact, this idea of being stiff-necked is a theme, then, that's carried on to describe the people all through the Bible, clear into the New Testament. So you actually hear this same epithet applied to the people in Acts chapter 7 as Stephen is preaching. And he says that they were stiff-necked people, 
uncircumcised in heart and ears, and they always resist the Holy Spirit. That's a great cap on what it means to be stiff-necked. Always resisting the will of God. But not just because I just don't want what God wants. It's because I want what I want. And the people were perverse. They were, they were stiff-necked, self-willed, and even more than that, they were unbelieving. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses told them, I'll return. But they just didn't believe. And they, even more than not believing, Moses did not believe that the God who Moses went to meet on the mountain was actually a God who was good. Perhaps this Moses so long delayed they said, we don't, we don't know what's happened to him. Maybe he's been consumed by this God that he met on the mountain. But there's some other questions we ought to ask us to give us, again, a, a background of where we're coming from this morning. And that's where did, where did all the jewelry come from? So, interestingly enough, this promise of receiving this jewelry was given clear back to Moses at the burning bush. Clear back when Moses was first called by God at the burning bush... He said, when you leave Egypt, you will spoil the Egyptians by taking from them all of this jewelry. This jewelry that was now being invested in an idol, in making a golden calf. They received this jewelry because of the very fact that God was faithful. God said in, in uh, Exodus chapter 3, he promised, you will spoil the Egyptians, you will take this jewelry. He fulfilled that promise in perfect fulfillment in perfect, in perfect faithfulness to his promise in Exodus chapter 11. So, in a sense, the jewels that the people now made the calf out of were an eloquent testimony to the fact that God is good, but they had given up on God. An interesting irony. The very things that were the blessing of God, they invested in making a new God to get what they wanted. So, why a golden calf? Why would, why would Aaron, Aaron particularly responsible here, the people said, make us gods, make us Elohim to go before us. And Aaron, taking the jewels, to them, take, I'll take your gold, put it into the fire. Of course, he later told Moses it just kind of out came a calf. But the Bible tells us more honestly than that, that actually Moses engraved that calf, created that calf. And, um, they, you know, every ancient culture, it said, had a bull god. Every one of them did. It was a symbol of strength and power. In fact, Egypt itself had multiple bull gods. Uh, Hapai was one. It was the powerful bull god of the Nile River. Apis was a bull that had special markings, and they were treated as so sacred, these bulls. Uh, literally, these were physical bulls, the kind that say moo. And uh, they were, had these special markings. They were considered an incarnation of the god Osiris, the god of the dead, the god of des resurrection, the god of fertility, and they actually embalmed these bulls when they died and, and uh, buried them like royalty. But even more significantly, Pharaoh himself was sometimes called the strong bull of his mother. So while we don't know exactly what Aaron had in mind when he crafted this golden calf, we do know this, that he was clearly leading the people back toward Egypt and toward the gods of the people all around them, the very gods that they had just spoiled. You see the remarkable irony in this, that the very faithful God who gave them the jewels of gold that they now cast into the fire was the God they were rejecting in favor of gods they'd already been 
triumphant over. That's the people. That's the golden calf. That's why they probably chose a golden calf. But interestingly enough, Aaron is not satisfied merely to just make this a pagan and idolatrous worship orgy. It was that. But he called it, if you look carefully here, it says that he called it a feast to the Lord. So it says in verse 5 of chapter 32, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. This is the Lord, the Lord Yahweh, the true living God. So how mixed up can this be? Here we have an idol, a golden idol. Aaron has built before it an altar. They're presenting sacrifices, burnt offerings, and peace offerings before this idol. And Aaron says this is though a, uh, well, it's a feast to God, to the true and living God. We're just choosing a different path for worshiping the true and living God. Unfortunately, there are a lot of resonances in history of how often it is easy to blend true worship, the worship of the living God, of Yahweh, of Elohim, with the self-willed worship that we want to present to God. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, you hear Jesus attacking this very idea. He said that at the last there would be people who would say to him, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in, the, in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonderful works in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It's really one of the most, in one sense, terrifying verses in the New Testament. But do you see the challenge that Jesus was presenting? He didn't say that these people did not do wonderful works. In fact, he didn't say that they didn't cast out demons. He said that it was not with the knowledge of the true and living God. So Aaron wanted to mix all this together to create something that didn't exactly abolish the worship of God, but that blended the worship of God with the worship of idols, and he came out with what God calls abomination. So God knew all of this when he brought the people into the wilderness, and so why did he do it? He, he knew that he would have this kind of a, a uh, failure on the part of the people when he took Moses up on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. When he came as a devouring fire on top of that mountain and all the people are terrified. He knew what their response would be. Why did he do it? Why did he lead them into the wilderness in the first place? And this helps us to understand why it's so significant what we find in Exodus chapter 33 when Moses meets God. So the first thing is, well, to humble them. And he humbled them through hunger and through manna. Manna that they didn't care for. Hunger that no one wants to have. He humbled them. He did more than that. He tested them. He gave them commands that they could not keep. To prove to them who they really were. And to give them evidence of who he really was. He did it also, it says, to teach them. This is back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you want to look there. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. He did it to teach them the word of the Lord, to show them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. But beyond all of that, surrounding all of the testing and humbling and teaching that God was doing, he did it, it says, in verse 16 of that same chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 8. He did it to do them 
good in the end. Been through any humblings? Any testings? Any teachings of the Lord? He has an overarching purpose for you in those things, just as he did for his own people. He wants to do you good in the end. In a sense, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16, is almost an Old Testament equivalent to Romans 8, 28. The great promise, that gold star promise, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is saying, I want to do you good in the end, but it comes through testings, it comes through humblings, it comes through learning that you don't live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And he did it, interestingly enough, in addition to that, to protect them. It says in Exodus chapter 13, and we're not going to flip back there and see it, but he says that he knew that if they saw war as he led them through the land of the Philistines, that they would desire to go back to Egypt. So even in this, even in leading them into the wilderness, it was deliberately and very directly for the good of the people. Let's ask one more question here as we get kind of to the background. What were the essential problems or what was the essential problem with golden calf worship? We've touched on some of it, but very quickly let's note that it reduced worship. So it took, it limited the infinitude of the invisible God to a paltry, visible representation of him. Every time we do that, Every time we try to take God, the infinite, invisible God, and reduce him to what we can see, we always come out short. And the people did. It did more than that. It contaminated worship, as we talked about that funny conglomerate that Aaron tried to make, a feast to the Lord. It contaminated worship by blending pagan elements of idolatry with the worship of the true God. It did more than that. It perverted worship. And it played out in worship that the iniquitous self-will of the people's hearts created. It was creative, but it was unauthorized. It was not what pleased God. So if we were to sum it all up, to, get a, to just step back for a moment and look at what was going on, the background into which God then arrives on the scene, we find that the people didn't believe. They chose their own way. They violated God's commands. They forgot his goodness and sought their own disobedient iniquity. They looked for a visible deity that looked like the deities of the people around them, and they perverted the worship of God. Not a real pretty picture. The people were wrong and wrong and wrong again. So how serious was this sin to God? Did it really matter to him? If you look in Exodus chapter 32, verses 9 through 10, God was ready to destroy the people. But Moses interceded. And then down, if you looked over to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 20, you actually find that God wasn't only willing to destroy the people and replace them with Moses and his line, but he was ready to destroy Aaron had Moses not interceded. And then in Exodus 32, again in verse 25 through 29, Moses called all the Levites to him. Who is on the Lord's side? And together the Levites came. And he said, everyone, gird on your sword and kill his brother. 3,000 people fell that day. It was a serious sin to God. Beyond that, God also himself, at the end of this chapter, 32, verse 35, he himself sent a plague. Many people died because of the sin of the people. Was this sin a grievous sin to God? 
Without a doubt. No question about it. God said, this sin is not able to be tolerated by my holiness and righteousness and truth and my justice. But there was something even worse that God had to say yet to come in chapter 33, the first three verses. The people called it the disastrous word. Listen to what it says in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. In other words, go ahead, go. I will send an angel before you. That's a pretty nice escort. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a, here it is again, stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. In a sense, God said, have it your own way. Go with your own God. Go without the true and living God. For should I go with you, I would most certainly destroy you. Moses interceded for the people at that point, And he said, consider too that this nation is your people. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in that you go with us? Remarkably, the identity of the people was not primarily in outward manifestations, not even in outward circumcision. The primary identity of this people, Moses argues, is in one thing alone. God goes with us. If you don't go with us, God, how will it be known that you are the true and living God? How will we be identified as your people? It is of no use to go alone. And you see then that God answers Moses, and we saw that as we began to read here in verse 12. God says in verse 14, my presence will go with you. So against all the backdrop of all of the sin, of all of the deliberate disobedience, even against the backdrop of judgment, because judgment has occurred, At the greatest judgment. The judgment by which God says, I would completely sever my relationship with you. You may go to the land. I'll send an angel before you, but I myself will not go. He relented. He showed mercy. Mercy in the face of some of the most heinous and greatest sin. So Moses says... I really want to know who you are a little bit more, oh God. And he asks, please show me your glory. Now, it helps to understand a little bit about what God's glory is and why Moses would have asked this question. So God's glory, to make a very simple definition, is when he puts his attributes on display. So you can have God's glory shown by his justice. Was God's glory shown when he sent the plague among the people? And the answer is yes. It was shown because his justice was demonstrated. Was God's justice, was his glory shown when uh, the Levites girded on their swords and killed 3,000 of their brethren? Yes, it was. Because there his righteousness is displayed. His holiness is displayed. 
But Moses is not afraid to yet again ask, still show me who you really are. Show me your glory. Let me come into contact with this God that you truly are. So really against the backdrop of their gross sin, Moses longed to look upon the God who was his only hope, whose reputation was his only basis for real intercession, whose kindness was his only premise for success. And he reveals himself to Moses. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Let's just break this down to be able to get a better handle on it into three basic components. First of all, God says, I will pass my... What did he say? Moses asked to see God's glory. And God said, I will pass by my goodness. Now, is goodness a manifestation of the character of God? Yes, it is, but it's not the one that I would expect to see at this moment. At this moment, that we've arrived at this point in history, I expect to see the severity of God. I expect to see the justice of God. I expect to see his flaming righteousness. I expect to see the fire on the mountain. But that's not what God shows up like. He says, I will proclaim my goodness before you. So the first thing God does is he demonstrates to Moses his goodness. We'll talk a little bit more in a moment about what that is. What really happened when Moses saw the goodness of God. But he also proclaimed the name of the Lord before him. It's interesting, this casts us all the way back to the burning bush. Because it was this very name that God gave Moses at the burning bush that he now says again, I'm the same God. I am the same true and living God. I'm Yahweh. I am the self-existent God. And he says then, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Why does God do what God does? And the answer is because he is God. He does what he pleases because all he pleases is right. So this goodness, what is, what is this goodness? I, I want to show you just a couple of different definitions that help us to get a little grasp on it. One is by Tozer. He says, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He's tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he's inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. Hmm, that's not what I expect to see at the mountain when Moses asks to see his glory. What does Packer say? He says, when the biblical writers call God good, they're thinking in general of all those moral qualities which prompt people to call him perfect, and in particular of the generosity which moves them to call him merciful and gracious and to speak of his love. But there's an even better definition, probably. We'll see that in just a moment. God's goodness, though, when we recognize who he really is, does some things for us. It shows us that he's long-suffering even when we're stubborn and slow to obey. It shows us that he's gentle when we're weak and fragile. It shows us that he's faithful when we're faithless and unbelieving. 
It shows us that he's forgiving when we're sinners. It shows us that he's overflowing in generosity when we are in need. In sum, in sum, he's everything that we need. He's everything that we are not. He's exactly what we must have and all that we most long for. God is good. This is the person that God was to a people who had sinned in vile ways against him in the immediate context. He was still a good God. Now, that's not to say he wasn't a just God. But he was to them a very good God. One of the most interesting places to find a definition in the Bible of God's goodness is actually in the book of Jonah. I want to read you this passage just briefly this morning because the, the uh, statement that Jonah makes, again, in a very unusual place, is, is really rather shocking. You'll remember that Jonah had gone to Nineveh to preach repentance to the people. Amazingly enough, the people responded to Jonah's horror. And uh, the king arose from his throne, it says, in verse 6 of chapter 3. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes. He proclaimed a proclamation, to issue, published it through Nineveh. And here's what he said. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Chapter 4 opens with Jonah's definition of goodness in the form of a grievous complaint against God. This is his complaint. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah was confronted with the goodness of God, too. He saw the glory of God in his goodness, and he hated it. Because God's goodness applied likewise to Jonah's enemies. Because he's the same God. The same God who was at the burning bush. The same God who met Moses on the mountain and put him in the cleft of the rock. This same God proclaimed his name Yahweh before him again. This God was the same God to other people who turned to him. And Jonah knew this is, in fact, really who God is. I knew it. That's why I didn't want to come in the first place, because I knew, sure enough, you are, to summarize it, you are a good God. And should those people turn, horrors, sure enough, you would repent. You would relent from doing to them the justice that I believe that they deserve. This reverberates back through the Bible. And you find that this very theme that Jonah picked out is actually in the next chapter that we're not going to look at this morning when Moses goes back up to the mountain to get a second set of tablets. And this is what it says. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, 
the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Psalms puts it this way, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now the parallelism, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he's made. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's, he's, he's good. He's good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. There's an example that we want to just mention in passing this morning. If you go back to the times immediately following the flood, you find that Noah there offers to God a sacrifice immediately following coming out of the ark. And he, he presents the sacrifice and God smells the savor of the sacrifice. And this is what God says. I will never again curse the ground because of man. And I would expect, well, I wouldn't expect what he says next. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Why did God say, I'll cut covenant with the earth, never again to destroy it in this way? Why did God say, well, never again remove the seasons as I did this one time? Is it because there was something to be found in man that was worthwhile? That something that was praiseworthy in man? No, it was for exactly the opposite reason. This says that the goodness of God is predicated not on anything in us. The goodness of God is predicated on his character alone. But would you want it predicated on anything in you, even if it were possible? I'm fickle. I'm in and out and up and down, and I feel good one time and bad another. God is never like that. His goodness never wavers. The reason that God cut covenant with the earth was because he knew how weak we really are. And so he predicated his covenant not on us, but on his own goodness. Now, to keep this in context... It's helpful to remember that, that God's goodness is best understood in many ways against the, the backdrop of his severity. You can see that right here in Exodus. God's severity was there. That's what it's talking about in Romans chapter 11. And if you want to look at that up some other time, that would be a valuable study. God's goodness and his severity are put in contrast. It says, note the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who are, have fallen, but God's kindness goodness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. We understand God's goodness best when we are most deserving of wrath. One of the best places to see goodness is against the backdrop of evil. In Romans chapter 3, taking this concept of goodness to the New Testament, we find that if our unrighteousness, Paul says, serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. In other words, we never do that. We never do evil that good may come. But we find that it's often against the backdrop of our evil that God's goodness shines the brightest. You know how it is with rainbows. A rainbow is nice on a blue sky, but a rainbow is better on a black sky. And it's against the black sky 
of our darkness. It's against the black sky, in this, this case, of those people's wickedness and sin with the golden calf that God shows up in his glory, the glory of his goodness. So what does it look like when we see God's goodness for ourselves? Well, I'd like to talk about these things this morning, but I think we just want to focus on one in the few moments that we have remaining. It looks like humility. That's considering where I would be apart from the goodness of God. It looks like gratitude, thanking God for goodness I do not deserve. It, it looks like obedience, learning to do what God says because he is good. Psalm 119.68 is an interesting illustration of this. It says, you are good and do good, so teach me your statutes. Obedience flows out of an understanding of the goodness of God. Prayer flows out of an understanding of the obedience of of the goodness of God, uh, interceding for others as Moses did on the basis of the fact that God is good, that perhaps he might relent from the judgment that the people genuinely deserve. I'm working on this one myself lately as I've been doing this study. I've been thinking about the fact that I have a situation in my life right now on which I can appeal to God on the basis not of the people involved in the situation who deserve judgment, but on the basis of the fact that I serve a God who is still good, even though they do. And I can appeal to him on that behalf, on their behalf, on that basis. But this is what we want to look at this morning. Just before we close, goodness of God in us looks like Repentance. The goodness of God, when we see it for ourselves, the way that it affects us, looks like repentance. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, there's a verse that's often misapplied. And it says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Or another translation says, the kindness of God leads leads us to repentance. This is what it says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will, uh, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, his goodness, is meant to lead you to repentance? The trouble is that it's not applied as merely, or it is often applied as merely a God's goodness is not, it's just going to, you're going to experience repentance on the basis of his goodness. But remember, it's against the backdrop of his severity. The note here that Paul is making is that to not repent is to presume on the goodness of God and to push the limits of his character. God's goodness, his kindness, is in fact meant to lead us repentance. So when you experience the things that you call God good for, those perfections that Packer talks about, which are ex- that you experience in your life, those ways that you say, isn't God good? Why is God doing that for you? Well, we know it's not because we're so good, right? So why is God being so good to us? Well, one of the chief reasons is because he desires, through that goodness, to lead us to repentance. Interestingly, the idea of repentance and goodness are all tied up in the Bible. If you look at the life of Noah, you find that God waited 120 years, patiently demonstrating his goodness, waiting for people to turn to him. To do what? 
to repent. You find in the New Testament, in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, that God is still waiting, not slow as some people count slowness, says the Apostle Peter, but waiting that people should repent on the basis of his goodness. He's long-suffering to us, not willing, it says, Peter says, that any should perish. So God's goodness, those things that we experience in our life where we say, isn't God generous? Isn't God great? Isn't God good in a a hundred ways? Are meant to lead us to repentance. And this is important to realize that it's not merely the kind of repentance that is the repentance to salvation. That's true. That's what Peter is talking about. Waiting, waiting until people who need Christ come to Christ. But repentance is something that happens that should happen, that needs to happen in my life on a daily basis. And God's goodness can lead me there. If I but see him, if I join Moses in a sense on the mount, if I stand with him in the cleft of the rock and there see who God really is because he's good. So when you experience God's goodness, it's an opportunity to step back and say, In what ways is God yet waiting for me? In what ways is God desiring to lead me into closer communion with himself? In what ways have I, perhaps in not so flagrant a way, but still erected in my heart some idol, some golden calf, something that takes the place of God in some way? God's goodness is meant to lead us to repentance This theme continues in the Old Testament in the book of Joel. But first I want to mention this one quote. This is from Cameron Butel. He says, when we see our sinfulness and rebellion against God, when we see our hypocrisy in condemning others for committing the same wrath-deserving sins, then we can also marvel at God's goodness and patiently and tolerantly withholding the wrath we deserve. Yet even now in Joel... Joel writes, declares the Lord, speaking for him, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Repent, for he is gracious. Good. He's merciful. He's good. He's slow to anger. He's good. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's good. And he relents over disaster. Repentance is not just a shallow, self-determined change of mind. It's not something we just self-generate because we're trying to kick a bad habit or because we're trying to turn over a new leaf. It's the process of casting our sinful selves on the goodness of God in Christ and there meeting the God who is good. And this isn't something that we just do once. It's something we get a chance to do over and over again to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's the process, really, of embracing life instead of death. It's the process of experiencing God's way instead of our own, of knowing that it is a good God that we serve and obey. I'll be frank. It's repentance that before God, based on his goodness, that will pull your marriage from the rocks. It's repentance before God who is good, It will break the back of stubborn addiction. 
It's repentance before a God who is good, who can mend rifts in the fellowship of a church. It's repentance before a God who is good, that can turn everything in your life around. If we really see God for who he is, if we really see him in his goodness, which is his glory, then we can hardly cling to those things which grieve him and test his patience. His goodness is meant to lead us to repentance. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the goodness that you show, which is in fact your glory. We've gathered just for a moment here to see your glory against the backdrop of wickedness and sin and evil. And we recognize with Moses, you, O oh God, are good. You are slow to anger. You are relenting from disaster. And that goodness is meant for the purpose of bringing us, your often sinful people, to repent. Help us to repent, we pray. With the psalmist we say, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you is forgiveness, goodness, that you may be feared. We ask that you would lead us by your goodness into repentance at the places where we most need it for Jesus' sake and for the glory of our good God.